Good morning, everybody. Uh, this is the last week of this short series called Analog Christian, uh, and then we're going to be jumping back into the Gospel of Matthew, and we're sort of in the final stretch for that when we get back to it. And if you're, if you're new here to us, we've just been going through Matthew for a very long time, but we're at the, the home stretch. It's been a very long stretch, uh, but we did take this little break for this short series, and today I want to... Um, talk maybe what we call the, the smallest unit of building when we talk about culture and society. Week one, we talked about the family unit. Week two, we talked about kind of the church family. Week three, we talked about the community at large. Today, I just want to talk about the individual. You as an individual living in the digital age. How do you live well in the world that you find yourself in? Um, technology as we've been saying for all these weeks, has completely changed everything. And if you're alive right now, you are a part of just like this rare experiment where the whole world completely changed in 100 years, like incredibly fast. And with every piece of technology, with every new device, with every advancement, there is embedded in that a promise that this thing will make your life better. Like that's what, that's what the, they're going to sell you something. It's if you get this, your life will be better. Now, I grew up, uh, I was born in the early 80s, and so I came to expect the future to be filled with a lot of things that would make life better, because we were promised a lot in the 80s. As little kids, the way the future was being depicted was like awesome. So if you were an 80s kid, you might remember something like this. Um, <laughs> This is from the great cinematic masterpiece, Back to the Future Part 2. That movie came out in 89, I was about six years old, and it took place in the future. The future that it took place in was the year 2015. So you're eight years past the future. Now, one of the things in Back to the Future Part 2 was this, uh, I believe it was called a rehydrator, a Black & Decker rehydrator, and you put in this baby, tiny little dehydrated pizza, and you put it in, and like two seconds later, bing, full pizza. Delicious. Now, you could just imagine six-year-old Isaac going, dude, the future's going to be awesome. It's going to be so great. It's going to be great. Uh, I was expecting commercially available and affordable hoverboards, uh, I thought for sure by the late 90s. Like six, as a six-year-old in 89, you're going, for sure by the late 90s, gonna, there's going to be like, let's go to Walmart, pick up a hoverboard, fly over water. Be awesome. Um, we were promised flying cars. They're not here. And I know some of you are like, no, technically we do have that. No, we were promised commercially available, affordable flying cards because we were going to a place. We were told we were going to a place where we would not need roads. That's, that didn't happen. 2015 came by. We still need roads. We can't even get our roads to not drive like this. There was also uh, self-lacing shoes uh, that never came to be. Okay, so we were promised, you know, we, didn't pro we weren't promised, but as, we, as I looked forward and many of us looked forward, we thought that all of this stuff would be making life better. But here's the reality. We've been reviewing some of just the, the data and the stats. And I'm not saying that everything that technology brought is bad. There's all kinds of good things that technology has brought, things I'm grateful for, things that we, we're using. You're looking at a screen. Um, however it hasn't made everything better. And so right now, 52% of Americans feel lonely, 47% feel their relationships are not meaningful, 57% eat all meals alone, 73% of Gen Z and millennials feel lonely, and we thought that social media, being able to be connected to friends and family all across the world just instantly would make some of this stuff go away, but in fact, it makes it worse. We're more miserable and lonely and sad in like every measurable way than we ever have been. Percentage of high school students who experience persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness during the past year, 42%. And of course, you can see that that rates higher for our young ladies than it does for our young men. 57% of our young females, of our young ladies, have persistent feelings of sadness and hopelessness. 
Percentage of high school students who seriously considered attempting suicide during the past year, 22%. That breakdown again shows females at 30, males at 14%. So here is the thing. Whether you like it or not, whether you want it to be true or not, you are living in the digital age. You are in that environment. That is the atmosphere. That is the air we all breathe. It's just reality. And so we've been asking this question, how can we live with chokmah, which is the Hebrew word for wisdom? How do we live well? How do we live with wisdom in the digital age? When the Jewish literature in the Old Testament examines wisdom, they're constantly asking themselves, what is the world that God made? What is the world that I live in? And how can I best live in it? So what we've been exploring is how do we do this? Like, how do we do this in the digital age? And we've said that the digital age is a completely disembodied, disengaged, and disconnected world. So we're here. How do we live well? And not just live well so like you can have a good life, but so that you could, you could build strong families and communities so that humanity can flourish and there's less human suffering. How do we do that? Romans 12, one through two says this. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. What I want us to focus on is verse two. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. That phrase, pattern of this world, is from the Greek word ion. And ion in Greek is a pretty flexible word, and it's translated in a number of ways. Sometimes it's translated age, like as in a time period, like this age, the Middle Ages. It's an age, it's a time period. Sometimes it refers to the world or the entire universe. Sometimes it's used to communicate the world's systems and structures, so not like the, the physical planet Earth, but like the world systems and structures, what are in place. And so that's why I like in this translation, it kind of combines a lot of those elements and says, I own here is functioning in a way that means pattern of the world. So what are sort of the systems and structures in place in our time, in our place of the world? And what is that, what is that producing? So sometimes the pattern of the world or the course of the world is referred, referred to as the spirit of the age or the spirit of the world. Here's like a basic dictionary definition of the spirit of the age. It's the set of ideas, beliefs, practices, and behaviors and aims that is typical of people in a particular period in history. So what's the spirit of the age? If you look at our behaviors, our practices, our beliefs, and our aims, and you kind of combine them all together, that's the spirit of the age. And Ion is, is like the systems and structures that are in place that sort of support all of these ideas and behaviors. So how do you live in the digital age, or how do you live well with the fact that there is the spirit of the digital age at work in the world? Now, in order to understand what I mean by spirit, I'd like to briefly examine the way we use the word spirit in English, because it's actually pretty weird. Uh, the word spirit in English is, again, a pretty flexible wor word, and when we look at all the different ways we use it, it's going to at first seem like, dude, we're just using this word all over the place, and none of these usages have anything in com common. But on further kind of examination you're going to see that actually the way we're using this word, um, we're sharing a lot of common features. There's a lot more similarity here than might appear at first glance. So what's one way we use the word spirit in English? Uh, an unclean spirit. And especially if you're a Christian, you're familiar with this, like an unclean spirit, a demon. So in the New Testament, you, you see Jesus encountering people who are demon-possessed. Now, now, this is what's interesting about this. In this sense, a demon or an unclean spirit is an immaterial being or entity. So it's not like they have 
It's not like you see it. There's not like a physical demon walking around. They're an immaterial reality, an immaterial being or entity that seeks to influence the physical material world. You follow this. When the Bible speaks of like temptations and stuff coming from the prince of the power of the air, there is this immaterial reality, this immaterial being that is seeking to exert influence in the material world. Now, if this being continues to influence someone, there's a degree at which it no longer is appropriate to use the word influence, but we start looking for other vocabulary to describe the phenomenon, like control or possession. So in the scriptures, you see people who are demonically possessed. They're possessed by a demon, and when Jesus is talking to them, he's not talking to the person, he's actually talking to the immaterial spirit that has now so influenced the individual, they're able to exert some type of control, to some degree. So that's one way we use the word spirit. There's another way. We talk about a person's spirit. A person's spirit. What I mean by that is if you have a loved one and they're on their deathbed and you're praying to them, you're praying for strength, and they pass away, we say that they're no longer here, they're with the Lord. Right? We use this type of language. Even though their material body is still there before us, but we're able to distinguish and say, That is just a material body, but their spirit is with the Lord. So it's referring to the immaterial part of them, spirit. We also talk about a person's spirit in a different manner where we say something like, that person has a gentle spirit. And by a gentle spirit, we're not talking about the part of them that that goes up to to Jesus when they pass. What we mean by a gentle spirit is, is we're saying like the essence of that person's character, or there is something, there is some essence that influences all parts of their character. So they have a, when you talk, they they have gentle conversations. Even when they argue, they have a gentle spirit. They go about things in a gentle manner. Do you see even how they, they, they put something together? It's just done in a gentle manner. And so we're talking about the essence of their character. And you might say something like, you know, this person, they've got a gentle spirit. They've got an angry spirit. And by that, you don't necessarily mean that they have a literal spirit whose name is anger. You're saying that they have a spirit of, of anger. Well, some of you might be saying, no, man, I actually mean this person is. Okay. It's interesting, though, right? It's like all these different usages of spirit. Here's, here's, a, here's a very weird use. Team spirit. Team spirit. When, let's say you're at a basketball game, you, you're going, you're, you've got tickets to an NBA game. Let's say it's a playoff game. And it's between the local team, whom you love, versus a, 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 a team from Southern California. <laughs> and you're watching this go down, and let's say your team, and it's a home game, is down by 15 at the start of the fourth quarter. Now 15, you can come back from, if, you're not, if you don't know basketball, you can come down from 15 in the fourth quarter. But it's gonna be difficult, especially in the playoffs. And let's say you're hoping like, man, we gotta start this fourth quarter strong. And the first like just horrible, first two plays horrible, your team's blowing it. What is the energy in the room? It's very low, it's, it's weird. You can have a building filled with thousands of people and when the team is just getting destroyed and you're starting to lose hope, there's like a silence. And there's just like, the team spirit is very low, if you will. Man paid, you know how much money I paid for these tickets? You see one game and they're gonna get destroyed. So then, let's say a certain professional athlete, um, We'll call him Steph Curry in this instance. Um, <laughs> comes down the court and just, bam, three-pointer. What happens to the room? A, a little spark of excitement. Like, there's, there, there's an energy in the room, and that energy is, is a little bit contagious. Like, it spreads, which is really bizarre, because one person doing one act, the act of making a basket on a court that's way far away from you, because you way up there in the back seats all of a sudden is affecting your energy, your emotion, your feelings in that moment. 
Now, let's say Steph comes back and he pulls up three, four, five feet behind the three-point line, nothing but net. You're like, oh my, oh. And then he does the same thing and recklessly is like nine feet behind the three. (laughs) Nothing but net. Now, all of a sudden, the, the energy, the spirit in the room is through the roof and everyone's on their feet. Now, this is what's crazy. Let's say... Um, there's a couple there, and the wife for an anniversary present bought the husband tickets. She don't really care that much basketball, but she loves him, knows she loves the game, wants to be with him, so they're there. And she started off just trying to be a, you know, good. I love my husband, got me these tickets. I don't even care. What team are we rooting for, babe? What is it? Okay. Now, this happens to you. This has happened to some of you. You do not care about that game. You do not care about basketball. You don't know any of the players' names. But in that moment... They were down 15, and now all of a sudden there's a comeback. You, who did not care 30 minutes ago, are on your feet. Defense. (laughs) Defense. And we could say in that sense, the spirit of the game has overtaken you. Like you've been overtaken by the spirit of the game. Now think about this. This This is strange. So there's this immaterial something. We might call team spirit like the collective agreement of a group of people that want their team to do well. They want to see them win. Okay. At the start of the fourth quarter, the energy, the spirit was very low. But then because of some baskets made, now there's energy and there's excitement and it can actually over... You who did not care about basketball find yourself caught up in the spirit of the game. This is really weird. So question out of that, can... Can there be all of a sudden a movement where people are adopting a set of beliefs or behavioral practices that begins to spread and the energy of that spreads? And so all of a sudden, you yourself, who five years ago would have never adopted that belief structure or behavior, all of a sudden find yourself sort of being pulled into it. It's as if It's as if the spirit has a power. It's as if the spirit of the age has a gravitational pull. And the more people get caught up in the spirit of the age, the stronger that pull is. If it's true of a basketball game, it certainly might be true of some other things. There's another weird one. Oftentimes, hard alcohol is referred to as a spirit. You can go and buy a spirit. Go to the spirit section. And this isn't talking about beer or wine. uh, It's hard alcohol that's referred to as spirit. And there's a long debate that no one really knows the answer to of when and how and why people first started calling hard alcohol, which is distilled alcohol, a spirit. Some people argue it goes back to Plato. That's almost certainly wrong. Most likely it goes back to medieval alchemists trying to solve some, some problems in their lives. Nevertheless, the word that they chose, the word that they chose is hauntingly accurate. They refer to it as a spirit. And you go, well, why did they conclude that? Well, there's a number of reasons, and each one's kind of weird. No one knows the answer, but I'll I'll share some with you. For one, um, hard alcohol is distilled, so what you're doing is you're heating a liquid up, and what you're doing is you're trying to heat the liquid up and extract the essence of that which is most important to you and capture it. So it's similar to like a person's, it's you're trying to capture the gentleness of someone's spirit. What is the core essence and how do you capture that? The other way is as you're boiling it, what are you doing? What's what's coming up out of it? Steam. And then you're trying to catch the steam and extract a pure form of it in its pure essence so that then you have, in some sense, you caught its spirit. Right? Because you you know how when you watch cartoons, Bugs Bunny stuff, when like that cat dies from chasing that bird? What, hap- what does the cartoon demonstrate? Like the blue spirit rising up, right? So what you're doing in the distillation process, it's almost as if there's this steam, and rather than letting it go up into the heavens, you capture it, and now you have its pure essence. So like you capture its spirits in some sense. Here's the other way, and this is where it gets really creepy, is that spirit can influence you but it can't influence you unless you invite it into your body. The spirit only has influenced you when you allow it to enter into your body. Now, in most cases, 
um, when, with, like with use with moderation and there's a healthy relationship, um, you drink a glass of wine and whatever effects or influence it has, they're not great and it, it's, it's gone relatively quickly. And the Bible speaks of, of wine to, being used in celebrations. It's actually described as a gift from God sometimes. But the Bible also has tons of warnings. So it talks about it in modes of celebration and being a gift from God, but then there's also like tons of crazy warnings. And you're like, well, why is that? Well, let's say you invite that spirit into your body again and again and again and again. And you do that year after year after year. At first, you begin to abuse the spirit, but eventually that spirit abuses you. And if you have too much of this spirit, we use language like you are driving under the influence, but something can have such a great influence on you that over time, we somehow use different language that crossovers from influence to control. And you see this when people get caught up in any abusive substance. Um, you might have a, and some of you have been here and, and you know the pain of this, but you have a mother who's looking at their 25-year-old son and you're going, I don't know what's happened to him. That's, that's not my baby anymore. But that's not my baby. Or a wife looking at her husband. That's not the man I married. It's not the man I married. Now what's taking place is that spirit has had so much influence that it's crossed over to do something more than influence. That individual is now being conformed to the desired pattern of that spirit. They're being conformed and changed. They're being molded in the image of the spirit. Which brings us all the way back to the spirit of the age. Remember our definition of the spirit of the age. It's the set of values, beliefs, ideas, behaviors, and practices of a particular people at a particular time. We all, whether we like it or not, exist in the spirit of the digital age. And there's a thousand ways that that immaterial external force seeks to influence you, seeks to influence us. It's, it, it wants us to conform to its image. Now, I'll give you an example of part of us, the spirit of the digital age. Um, you might say in our culture there's a spirit of lust. And the reason why we have a spirit of lust is because there's a spirit of pornography that belongs to the spirit of the age. Now, just being alive in this ecosystem, you, f you are automatically, whether you like it or not, you, your family, your children, you are going to feel the gravitational pull of the spirit of the age. And let's say, for example, there's a father who begins to look at pornography. If a father has brought pornography into their home, is it more or less likely that his 12-year-old will be exposed to it as well? Greater. Greater chance the 12-year-old. And if the 12-year-old gets exposed to it, do you think there's a, a greater chance that when the 12-year-old has friends over, that he might share some of this inappropriate content with his peers? Yes. Okay. So what's actually taking place is that when one person gains access to something, it begins to bear influence, but it doesn't just want to bear influence with that individual. The spirit wants to replicate itself. It creates a pattern. It wants to replicate a pattern. So it gets the dad, and then now there's a greater likelihood of the son, and then the son to his friends, and the pattern replicates. It grows. Now, what happens if you have this taking place all the time, all over the place? You have this pattern repeating itself over and over again, and by nature, by replicating itself, that pattern actually becomes stronger. You might say, how does a pattern become stronger? Well, if 60%, 50%, or 70% of the population, 20%, it doesn't matter, pick whatever number you want, begins to adopt that pattern in their life, does that up the chance of you and your children being caught up in that same pattern? Whether you like it or not, you exist in the environment in which the pattern is repeating and replicating itself. This is why it's very scary to like, raise children in, in this culture. You're going like, what? So just by default. So the pattern, the spirit, 
wants to gain influence, and once it's done, it's not satisfied. It wants to grow its power. And the way it grows its power is by creating that pattern. So, was it easier to resist pornography in the year 1510 than it is in 2023? Yes, because technology invited in a host of things that we didn't critically examine what was being allowed in, and then the spirits gained influence, and then they began to replicate. And now we're in a culture that is hyper-sexualized. And there is sexual content and imagery everywhere, and whether you like it or not, it's seeking out your family and your children. You have to figure out how to live well within that environment. That's one example. This is one example. But this is how it works. So let's, let's, let's think about it on a much smaller level. Um, you are, you're going to hang out with some friends. You're going to hang out with some friends. And you're really excited. You know, you're a positive person. I haven't seen these five friends in a long time. You go there and everyone's like in a bad mood. Do you think you are more likely to adopt the pattern of bad moodness in that room than you were if everyone was happy and excited to see you? No, all of a sudden there's an energy in that room. And it's, and now you, you, you by, unless you're one of those super crazy, happy, joyful, extroverted people, then you actually have the strength and power to exert your pattern in that room. Cheer up, everybody. I brought pizza. <laughs> or let's say this. Um, you have, you have, um, you're eating dinner at the table and you don't have a hard rule. You don't have a hard rule about, you know, don't use cell phones at the table. We're not allowed to go on phones at the table. You don't have that rule, but no one's doing it. But then one person starts to browse. Do you think that ups the likelihood that someone then will also likely take out their phone? So you have to have boundaries you have to have boundaries that don't invite the spirit in to have its influence. You don't invite the spirit to have influence. Now, all of these screens, I do realize that there's a spirit of hostility by every young person to me in this church because <laughs> I basically told all your parents to go home and wage war against all the things you love. Don't care, it's good for me. You're gonna thank me in about 37 years. Um, so it, it can happen in small sense. It, it can happen in family systems. Some of you know this. My dad had an anger problem. My grandfather had an anger problem. I swore to God I'd never have an anger problem. I have an anger problem. Because the patterns grow in strength and the more people adopt the pattern and that spirit, the stronger it grows and the greater ability it has to exercise and exert its influence over you. So what are you to do? Pretty straightforward, pretty difficult to actually accomplish. You have to disrupt the pattern. You have to stand against the spirit of the digital age and disrupt the pattern. It's replicating ability. So fire needs fuel. It needs oxygen. It needs wood. If you remove that stuff, the fire dies. So it's not getting rid of everything in the digital world because there's some things that are good, but where there are bad stuff, you have to starve it. You have to, you, you have to put boundaries in your life that set you up to create new habits and new patterns. So you have to disrupt the pattern. So let me give you an example. Let's go back to the husband who was going to look at inappropriate content online. Um, if he were to set up some, some pretty good boundaries, he's not prote- there's nothing you can do to protect you from, completely from the spirit of the age. There's nothing you could do. You live in it. That's our ecosystem. But let's say, you know, him and his wife, they... They, they share a device, they, they share passwords, they have rules about screen time, they're not allowed to go on it, they, they've done a lot of things. They are now setting themselves up with these behaviors and practices. They're setting themselves up to, to create better habits and they're more likely to resist the spirit and pattern of the age by having these practices in place. Let's say, um, because dad does that, is there a greater chance that his 12-year-old now or there's, there's a lesser chance now that his 12-year-old will likely be exposed to it accidentally in an early age. And maybe if dad doesn't and son doesn't, when son brings over those friends, those friends now aren't as likely to be shown this stuff by son. And maybe the habits and patterns in this household are something that's seen as kind of cool. Like when those kids are at home, mom and da- they're fi- children are fighting for attention between mom and dad because mom and dad are like this. 
they're glued to the screen too. But over here, it's like, oh, you guys talk to each other? I, like, it feels different here. You know, it feels more loving here. It feels more gen- It feels as if there's a different spirit at work in this house. So you see, you can disrupt these patterns. You have to, to not allow yourself to be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Okay, now, I've been speaking purely on materialist terms. So I've been talking about team spirit and the spirit of a house and a spirit of pornography, but I, I've never meant for any moment that there's like a little spirit named like, this is spirit warriors, and he comes to help the Golden State Warriors in need. And, and the team spirit isn't an actual entity. And when I talk about the spirit of alcohol needing a host body to exert its influence over, I've been t- talking in materialist categories. By materialism, I mean the physical world. I haven't talked about anything spiritual yet. Now that's for the Christian where this becomes much more difficult because it's more than just disrupting patterns. It's not as if there exists in our culture a set of behavioral practices and we could just sort of establish some new habit and it's all good. See, for the Christian, the spirits at work in the world influencing you are influenced by actual spirits. Ephesians chapter 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. Why? That you may be able to stand against the schemes of an evil, immaterial being that the scriptures identifying as the devil. Verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. Do you see how heavy this language is? Oh, you think you're just fighting like in the material plane, like in the physical world. Like there's some behavioral habits. Paul says there are powers and authority, cosmic powers at work over this present evil age, these spiritual forces. And so the world, its systems and structures that create the patterns that influence us are being influenced by spiritual realities. So the spirits are being influenced by spirits. It's very difficult to to get it when you understand the language, right? But a spirit of anger in a house could be influenced by a spirit of anger that's been involved in that family for generations. And that spirit at work in the family might have been influenced by spiritual beings in the background who influence the patterns. We exist within the the digital age, whether we like it or not. We have to learn to identify the things that are harming us. What are we inviting in? Is this good? Is this bad? What practices can we put in place? Now, here's the crazy thing. This is epic language. Like, here's the bad guys. Here's the bad guys, guys. There are cosmic forces in the heavenlies, rulers, powers, authorities, and they're raging war for your soul. It's like epic cosmic language, right? So you expect then the scriptures to go on with epic cosmic language like, and you, mighty warrior, will receive power from on high, the sword of thunder and the axe of fire, the shield of Numenor, you know. (laughs) You don't get that. What is the Bible's response to this type of evil? It's actually quite basic. It's like Paul goes on after this and gives you the armor of God. And what is it? Oh, you take the sword of the spirit, the Bible. You take the shield of faith, put faith in God. Then he says at the end of it, always keep praying, never forget to pray. So in some sense, it's like super basic. Uh, pray, you read your Bible, da, 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 and you go, I kind of wanted a cool, like I wanted the sword of thunder to fight the cosmic power. You don't wrestle, that's flesh and blood terminology. You do not wrestle against flesh and blood. So the weapons of our warfare have to be fundamentally different. And the weapons that the Lord gives us is faithfulness, righteousness, prayer, worship. And as you do that, you are actually fighting against the cosmic powers. Why? Because when you faithfully practice the small things and you be wise with your decision-making, you are disrupting the pattern. 
What happens when you disrupt the pattern? The gravitational pull of that pattern upon your life and your family's life is weakened. And if enough people weaken the gravitational pull in their little sectors, all of a sudden that pattern is absolutely weakened in the culture as a whole. And as that power is weakened, the influence by the spirit wanes. So it's like, how do you fight against the cosmic powers? Read your Bible and pray. Go to church, worship Jesus. You may not feel like that's doing something, but that's, that's, that is the path that the scriptures give for you. So what I want to do, as we kind of wrap up this series, I want to give you some super, super basic things, just like we've done every week, but super basic things that you can do as an individual that will absolutely begin to disrupt the patterns and spirit of this world in your life. Okay, first, first example is a little bit from week two, but I want to bring it up because it's illustrative of the principal idea. Sabbath. In the Old Testament, God's people were given a Sabbath, and it was a command. You were to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. How did that work? You lived six days in the normal rhythm of the rest of the world. But then on one day, you would live differently than every other people on the face of the earth. Sabbath day was different. So if you were living in a community and you didn't know someone was Jewish, you would know with certainty they were Jewish on one day. You would find out really quick because they lived fundamentally different in that day. So they had a pattern. They had a rhythm. One, two, three, four, five, six, and seventh day holy. And so to the rest of the world, just by default, just by living on this day differently, people knew who you were. Oh, this is a Jewish family. Well, how'd you know? I invited them over this day. They said, no. They said, well, can you come after church? And they said, no, the whole day is dedicated to the Lord. They live fundamentally different. And so they were set apart. Another word for that is holiness. They were made holy by this rhythm and this practice. Now, we live in a place where oftentimes we don't want to be seen as different. But as we said at week one, like, Christian, you're supposed to be different. You're supposed, you suppo- you're supposed to have a different spirit about you. And so the first Christians, they didn't keep going to synagogues on, on Sabbath, but they changed their gathering day to Sunday because that's the day the Lord resurrected him. So they changed the day, but they kept the pattern, the rhythm, one, two, three, four, five, six, and then seventh was different. If you want to begin to live different and break the patterns of this world, you adopt this. Not because you have to go to church on Sunday. That's how you joyfully live differently and break the patterns and powers of the spirit of the age. The whole day is unto the... I mean, it's... it's, This is a special day. It's Resurrection Sunday. It's Resurrection Sunday. Practice Thanksgiving. You want to know how to break the pattern? that's incredibly strong in our culture, be a thankful person. Our our culture is so greedy and self-absorbed and selfish and self-centered. We are, people make statements like this all the time. I don't know if it's true, but we gotta be at least top 10. Like we're top 10 most ungrateful people who have ever lived. We're ungrateful. We hate on everything. A Christian can stand apart from the pattern of this world by learning to be a thankful person. The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 5 that the will of God in Christ is that you would be thankful. God's will for you is that you would be a thankful person. You want to know how you'll, you'll stand apart and be different? If you're a thankful person, like at work, dude, this person's thankful, like all the time. They bring a joy. They're thankful. Even when, they, even when the boss is kind of treating them bad, even when they, they have to do parts of their job that they hate, they're still, they're thankful. They're always giving thanksgiving. It's like they have a different spirit about them. Learn to be a thankful person. It'll, cha- it'll change the way you live. Three, told you, super basic. Pray. Pray. You want to know how to fight the spiritual battle and break the patterns of this world? Become a praying person. Here's one tip that you could do that I've said a long, it was years ago that I, that I, that I encouraged you all to do this. But if you can, um, start your day off giving thanks to God. Maybe the, maybe the first thing you do, train yourself, the first thing you open your eyes, thank you, Lord. 
I'm alive. There's breath in my lungs. And even if I have nothing and my world is falling apart, you're with me right now in this moment. Thank you. Then you get out of bed. And if you could do this, get down on your knees and bow before Jesus. We talk about Jesus being king. And it's like, that's just an abstract thing in our brain. Embody that reality in your flesh. You're not a digital creature. You're an embodied creature. Don't just say things quietly in your head to yourself. Do it with your whole body. And you, you start your morning off by embodying the reality of the kingship of Christ, saying, what would you have of me today, my king? I am your servant. Your days are going to go different. Your days will be different. Maybe not all the time, maybe not drastically, but it'll, it'll, re, it'll, it'll reorient your, your morning. <sighs> Told you. Basic. Read your Bible. Why? Because the Bible teaches you how to identify the patterns of this world, the works of the enemy, the works of the flesh, the works of the world, and it gives you the tools and equipment to fight it. Uh, Pastor Sam and I w- were talking a few days ago, and we talked about how... Um, We've been pastoring long enough now where you see people who started like reading their Bible every day and like at first you, you're just like, you don't notice any change. And you're reading your Bible every day and you don't notice any change, right? You're like, oh, I'm going to really commit to reading my Bible and you think reading your Bible every day is going to make you some like super spiritual righteous person and all your hurts and hangups are going to go away. You're reading it every day. It's like nothing's, gonna, nothing's happening. But then we said, you know, it's been strange now that we've been here long enough. For those people who actually like started reading their Bible every day and they've been doing it for 10 years, they're different. They're different. They're more mature. God has grown them. So um, when you eat lunch, you're not like, oh, I'm, I feel more alive than I ever have. This lunch is fantastic. I'm at an all-time high in my life. No, you just ate lunch. Okay? But what happens if you don't eat lunch? You don't eat food for long amounts of times. Then you get hungry. This changes you. So scripture reading is, is it's like eating a meal. You, you may not even remember what you, you don't remember what you ate two weeks ago. Like, what did you eat? What did you eat 1999, Friday, September 3rd for lunch? You don't remember that. You're not going to remember a sermon I gave seven years ago. If you did, I'm really impressed. It would be really encouraging to me. Um, <laughs> that's, not, that's not what's happening. It's the slow, steady intake of the nutrients that's giving us life. And sometimes you'll have a great meal. You hear it, you read the Bible. You're ch- there's a great sermon. There's a great worship song. And you really feel it more than ever. But most of the time, it's just a slow intake. But it's giving you life. Whether you know it or feel it or not, it's giving you life. Fast, huge one. Fast or abstain from something. Fasting is where dealing with food, abstaining from other things is like I'm not gonna um, be on social media for a month or something like that. Both are good. Fasting is, is, is really good, but both are good for this reason. Fasting is where you tell yourself no for a greater good. You wanna break the pattern of this world in your life? Learn to tell yourself no for the greater good. Our culture constantly tells ourselves, yes, whatever I want, whatever I need, whatever my heart's desire is, whatever I think is right, whatever I think is the morally right thing to do, just whatever comes from my heart, that's where I go. When you tell yourself yes all the time, you become an incredibly weak person. Learn to tell yourself no for the greater good. And fasting is a way that does it. Abstaining from certain things does that. Practice saying no. Our culture is not, they don't have that pattern. They don't have that pattern. Whoa. Please go back. Oh, my. No. I'll make sure to text message Greg after service and tell him, hey, I know you weren't here physically, but you're with us in spirit. (laughs) Okay. We're almost done. 
Confess your sins. We live in a culture that wants to do away with even the category of sin. It's so offensive. Why would you, why would you say I'm a sinner? Because you're a sinner, dude. Everyone, let's just get over it. We're all got our issues. What the Christian does is we recognize them and we confess them. We don't leave them in here. We get them out and we confess them to Christ and to others. And there's healing in this. There's healing in getting that out and confessing it to others. And then lastly, read and know the Sermon on the Mount. I'm afraid to touch this thing now. Um, The Sermon on the Mount is the ultimate pattern of the world destroyer. This is where Jesus teaches us how to live as Christians. Pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies. Be generous. Reconcile with those who are wrong. When you live out that Sermon on the Mount, that is the ultimate destruction to the pattern of this world. It destroys the spirit of the age. Okay, so we take these things and we say, do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So we are not to be conformed to the ion of this world. We're not to be conformed to the patterns of this world. We are supposed to be conformed to a different image, a different pattern. 1 Corinthians 15, 49, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, that's Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, that's Christ. In other words, you can be conformed to the image and pattern of this world, or you can choose to be conformed to the image of Christ. You can look like the world, or you can look like Christ. How do you do that? It's not big fancy stuff. It's day in and day out doing the small little things. Praying, bowing before Jesus, making good boundaries to to technology and devices, fasting, worshiping, going to church regularly, consistently. All of these things, whether you feel it or know it, they're molding you and shaping you to the image and radiance of the Son of God rather than this broken, corrupt, evil, perishing world. Here's a picture. That's not a picture, it's a statue. A sculpture, uh, it's, it's entitled The Veiled Virgin Mary. It's a picture of Mary, and uh, it was, this, scu- this sculpture was done in the 1800s by an Italian guy, uh, Giovanni Strazza. Okay. Do you see the veil over her? Like, there's no veil there. That's a solid piece of stone. That's just stone. Like, what type of genius does it take to produce that? Like, that actually looks like you could see a soft veil, all the intricacies. He carved that out of stone. That's just rock. It's just rock. Now, you get a big piece of marble stone, and then you take different types of, and, and types of chisels, and you begin to, to move away rock. And every so often you blow on some dust and now this one you can't use a big chisel. This is a little tiny one. You've got to get just in this little crevice and you have to be aware of light and shape and all of this stuff to produce something like this. How many little, like how many times do you think that guy had to hit or tap or to produce that out of a big giant piece of rock? A whole lot. See, oftentimes we want some magical, like I, I, I do this and then I'm spiritually transformed. But it's the small things. Sunday after Sunday, scripture after scripture, prayer after prayer, thanksgiving after thanksgiving, where you are allowing Christ to mold and to shape you and to come in with his chisel. And you may not see it or feel it in the moment, but you be faithful in the small things year after year and something will begin to emerge. I know when we look at a lot of these basic things, you're going, look, I, man, this is how I feel, man. This is us. You need to do something greater than that. I need something more. I need better advice than to, to read my Bible and pray and not watch too much TV. No, you don't. That's not how growing in Christ works. That's not how sanctification works. You may feel like that, but you submit yourself to Christ and you allow the master sculptor to chisel away at you. Sometimes very hard for bigger pieces, sometimes very delicately. You do that day after day, week after week, 
month after month, year after year, decade after decade, and you will find yourself being conformed to the image of the Son of God and not that of the world. And you will find yourself being pulled less by the spirit and power of this age than ever before. And you will feel your desires and your affections be torn, turned more to Christ than they were before. But it takes time, little by little. Ephesians 2.1 says this, this is bad news. You were dead in the trespasses in sin and once you walked, once you, you once walked, following the course of this world, world. Course here, the Greek word here is ion. You were following the patterns of this world, the systems, the spirit of the age. And you've, it gets worse. You were following the prince of the power of the air, an immaterial evil being. And that spirit is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. It doesn't get worse than that. You were dead in sin. You worked for the devil. You're a child of wrath. You were committed to the passions of the flesh. You followed the course of this world. It's horrible news. But then the next verse. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, just a stone salve of marble, we were dead in our trespasses. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of grace and kindness towards us in Christ. He pulled you from the pattern of this world. He took you out. He unplugged you from the matrix. And he ripped out the pattern. The pattern still has influence. There's still a gravitational pull. But because he was gracious and merciful, he saved you when we were dead in trespasses. And now as believers, we recognize that rescue and commit our lives to breaking the remaining influence of the course and power of this world so that we can be conformed not to it, but to Christ. And now we do one of these acts where we let the master take his chisel and do something small. We take communion. And as we take communion, before we stand, I want to say this. Whether you feel it or not, whether you think it or not, it doesn't matter if you faithfully do this as a believer. Right now, in this moment, this is one of the ways we weakly allow him to chisel away at us, to conform us to his image. So let's stand as we take communion. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he said, this is my body, it's broken for you. When you take this, remember. So right now, we remember and we allow our king to chisel us, to chisel away. Remove something from us, Lord. Help us remember your death and have it transform us. Likewise, Jesus took the cup, the blood of the new covenant, and we say that when we take this, we are declaring the death and resurrection of Jesus until he returns. And so, Lord, we recognize that there is a spiritual battle. There is a spirit of the age. In the midst of that, in the world that we live in, help us to proclaim your death and resurrection until you return. And so, Father, now we do another activity that molds us and shapes us. We worship your son. And as we worship him, you...